So, um, my message this morning is on the su- subject of be loved as part of continuing our, our sermon series on small groups, great purpose. And um, when I was reflecting this morning in worship, um, it wasn't in my notes, but it occurred to me that over the years of my faith in Christ since coming to know Jesus, um, there have been a series of revelations and points at which I have gone to new depths and levels with Christ um, that have marked and are kind of like along my timeline. But the one that is by far and away the most significant and important for my journey with God was the revelation that I am loved by a father. And the heart knowledge of that was something that actually is so, so important. I don't think it can be overstated or overtaught on in church because it's a basic message that is at the heart of a gospel. But it's a gospel that is so often um, or more often than not, not truly understood in our hearts. So I want to explore that this morning. We're going to do that in... um, three different points. So rather than it being three different unique points that we're going to look at, we're going to look at this more in relation to a flow um, because they're intrinsically linked, but they have to go in a particular order. So um, they're kind of in three dimensions, as I've put it on here. So we have the first dimension, which is loved by God. This is the most important pillar um, of the message this morning, what it means to be loved by God. In response to that and following on from it, and it always has to be in this order, is our second dimension, which is loving God in return as a response to being loved. And then from that, as an overflow and a result of of that, we have our last one, which is loving one another. So we're going to look at each in turn um, and continually going back and forth. So I apologize, my style, I'm not particularly like orthodox and sort of uh, keeping it, I tend to sort of move about a bit. So I hope you can keep up with me this morning um, as we're going to share and look through that. So I want to start with um, some testimony. So um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm uh, a father, very proud father to two beautiful boys, Ezra and Solomon. Um, and last year, in November, uh, Ezra became very, very poorly. Um, so he, we thought he had tonsillitis. We took him to the GP. Um, he wasn't able to keep anything down, so everything that he was eating and drinking, he was vomiting straight back up again. And the problem was that he was just becoming dangerously dehydrated, and we took him to the GP. They said, it'll be fine, just keep him on the, um, give him 10 mil at a time. And we continued that. And he just got worse and worse. So I ended up taking him to the hospital where the doctor who saw him said, I'm not overly concerned, he said, but we will put him on an IV for for some fluids. And in 24 hours, I expect he'll be as right as rain once he's got a lot of fluids in him and he's he's no longer dehydrated. So um, I wasn't too worried either. Um, It's not a nice place to be in hospital with your child. But I wasn't overly worried at that point because... Um, there'd been a number of words that had been spoken over Ezra that were yet to be fulfilled. And so I was resting on those, those promises and those assurances. But 24 hours came and went, and uh, my little boy got more and more um, poorly. He started to become less responsive, um, and he didn't really wake up much. And at that point, doctors started getting a bit concerned, and they started running some tests. They thought it was bacterial meningitis. It wasn't, but they they did a lumbar puncture, 
And um, he just started to visibly deteriorate really quickly. And I kind of, we, at that point, um, the church family, for which I am just so blessed, because the moment our family, um, and by that I don't just mean the bells, I mean every single one of you here, knew about that. The church did what the church does best, and it jumped into action, and it prayed. And we had a church family come up. They prayed with us, and I was, I was confident, because I was like, bacterial meningitis, that can be treated. That's fine. And I was like, that's okay. And I kind of thought that we'd gotten to that summit, and that was like the worst point, and from there it was going to be, it's okay. I can see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. So that night, um, me and Rebecca took it in turns to watch over Ezra as he slept, just to make sure that he was okay. Um, and it came for my turn to sleep, and I, I just nodded off when Rebecca um, shook me awake and just said, he needs to be changed, can you just give me a hand? And so I, I got up, and um, it was then that I noticed as Rebecca held him that he suddenly became really rigid and totally unresponsive as his eyes stopped working. And um, my little boy started to have seizure after seizure, and... Um, Doctors, the room very quickly filled with medical professionals, doctors and surgeons uh, and anaesthetists. And he very, very quickly became unstable and they were not sure what was happening. Uh, now, I, we are, we're blessed to have a couple of people in the medical profession in here, um, in our church family. And they've always told me in the past that there's a kind of a, a good rule of thumb is that if nurses and doctors, they can always, you can do, there can be stuff that's going on that can seem quite daunting. But if they don't look concerned or nervous, then you shouldn't be either. It's usually okay. And I had always stuck with that. But I was in a room filled with a lot of doctors and people who all looked very, very worried and very concerned. And um, they told me that they realized he'd had a bleed on the back of his brain. They don't know what. They still don't know why. And that they weren't sure whether he was going to make it or not. He was very, very poorly indeed. I, they rushed him to scans. And they put him in an induced coma to try and limit the, the damage to his brain. And, um, and any risk of further damage and try and stabilize him. And there was a period in that night of a few hours where the doctors had told me that it was not, there was no, like, assurance that he was going to make it. Um, and I actually just found out after the first s service, um, one of our family here who is based in Lincoln Hospital has spoke, had spoken to the doctors and the anaesthetist afterwards when he left and he was taken over to uh, Nottingham that apparently the doctors didn't think that he would survive the night which was news to me because I, I was kind of in, in two minds at that point but I had to mentally prepare myself for the fact and I sat in a state for several hours where I was not sure if I was going to see my little boy alive again and whether he was going to, you know, all the things like the, the stuff that as parents we love, seeing them smile and laugh and come and, and play with us. I wasn't sure whether I was going to get to do those things. And I sat and I watched him laying on a table as they were 
doing all various things to try and keep him uh, alive. And I have never felt so much pain and hurt at the the possibility of a life without him. And thank God that he is still here today, which is a different testimony in itself. But why am I telling you this story? It's not actually the testimony of him being healed that I want to convey to you this morning. That is a different testimony for a different day. The reason why I want to tell you this story is because in John 3.16, I believe we've got some Bible passages that will, will come up on the screen in a moment. John 3.16 to 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then John says again in four, uh, chapter 4, verses 9, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why is that important? Because in that moment, I sat in an operating theater watching my son who, and facing a very real prospect that he might die. And the pain and anguish that I felt as an imperfect father and with an imperfect son was more than I ever want to go through again. I would never choose to go or on my worst enemy for them to go through that pain. But the significance for us in learning that we are loved is the revelation that God, as a perfect father, saw his son, Jesus, and felt that same pain and then looked to every single one of us who were sat in this church this morning and said, I'll go through that. And he felt that pain and he died for you. And you have to understand this is, it was was a, a revelation that happened whilst I'd had it before I was in Uh, in hospital with Ezra, but it became so much more powerful and keenly felt afterwards because I became aware that the same God who is is all-loving and perfect and, and me who is a sinful man, God felt that exact same pain and faced that same choice of losing his son who was blameless and still chose me and you. Like, wow, that should... the. God's love is just overwhelming. And how can we have any other response in that situation but to fall before him? And we cast our crowns before him and we say he is so worthy and so glorious because he is such a good God. James used a a phrase last week in his, his message where he said that God paid a great price for you and therefore that we should be good value for money. And I really liked that phrase. But we can't be good value for money if we don't understand what the price is that God paid for us. And that is a price that he paid through love. Every single one of us needs to grasp, not in our heads, but in our hearts, the fact that there is a love that God has for every single one of us that is so profound and deep and powerful that it went to the cross and died for us. I had a friend when I was at Bible college called Kim. 
He was from um, South Korea. Really beautiful man. Um, he just had a heart that was so on fire for Jesus. And I described him in the first service as being someone, when you met him, you felt like you had met Jesus, which is something that we should all strive for. There was a warmth and a love that just oozed out of him. And we had at Cliff, we had morning prayers that we would get up every morning. We'd go to the morning prayers um, after, just after breakfast before starting our studies for the day. And it was his turn to lead. And one morning he got up and he said, um, last, when I met him, by the way, um, he had a wife and a little boy. They were back in Korea. Um, they'd come over to visit. And his wife was pregnant with their second child. And um, he got up and he said, last night I had a f- Skype call with my wife. And I found out that um, our child had miscarried. Um, which I can't imagine that sort of um, anguish and, and pain, especially separated uh, when you're separated from your family. And you know the incredible thing? And it's only possible because he had an encounter with God's love and he knew how much God loved him. He said he sobbed on his bed and he was lying on his back and he said, he said my tears of pain and grief turned to tears of joy. He said as God showed him again that not only was his, his little baby already with the Father in glory, he said, but how much, like the pain that he felt was the same pain that the Father felt for his son Jesus as he sent him to die, and that he had still given up everything to die for us so that we could be saved. And so he, he got up the next morning and gave glory to God and praised him. And I'm, I was, at the time, I couldn't even comprehend. I wasn't in a place with God where I, I was bowled over by that response. But now what I see is that that response is only possible when we have an encounter with God's love that radically changes us to our core. This is because this revelation is a revelation of heart knowledge. It's one thing to know in your head, but God wants you to know it in your heart. Why is it important, though? It's because the enemy cannot handle a people of God unleashed who know his love and know their identity. Because to know you are loved by God is to know your identity and where you stand. And the enemy can't handle it. And I'm also going to say, and then we'll build on this more in, in the next point. When you discover and you unlock that revelation that how much you are loved by God deeply, powerfully, and profoundly, it is also one of the most significant keys for reaching breakthrough and breaking down barriers and walls in your life that have been there sometimes, actually not just in your life, but generationally. And there are things in my own life, like I'll share in a moment, where that revelation allows God to finally step in and just unlock that door. And there are so many people within this church and within the church nationally where they need to take hold of this because it is the thing that is holding them back because their identity is rooted in fear and self-doubt and loathing. And actually, there's no place for that. And it's impossible for those things to coexist when you are in a full awareness of how God views you because the moment you encounter that love... It's not just a feeling, it's something that changes you and you think, if, I, if God views myself that way, who am I to view myself any less? How can I do it? Because God speaks over you futures and promises and hopes and what he, how he sees you rather than what the enemy would have us believe and what he would have us see. 
Our next passage is moving on to our, our, our next subject, which is our love for God. It's from Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. He commands us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The first part of this, love the Lord your God with all your heart. I'm going to just focus on that part just for now when we're talking about our love for God. This is because in the Western world, the heart is the, called the seat of emotion. So when we talk about the heart, we talk about the, it, we're, uh, it's where our feelings come from. We, I love you with all my heart. Um, it's a very Western ideal. But actually, did you know in the Hebrew, the seat of emotion wasn't the heart. It was the gut. It was the bowel. And it gives a whole new meaning to when we talk about, you know, having like a, a gut feeling or, you know, um, being really moved emotionally. You've got that that feeling. And personally, I, th- I said, I feel like I'm probably more Jewish because actually I tend to feel things in my gut. Um, I just, it tends to tend towards be that if I'm going through anything, if there's stress or, or any difficulties, I normally always feel it there before I feel it here or here. But when we talk about the heart, it often conjures up this sense of kind of whimsy and triviality, like, a, oh, you know, I'm following my heart or it's like a, I've got a feeling... And actually, that's not what this scripture is getting about. When we talk about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, it's talking about something that is moving. It's a response to something that deeply moves us, where um, it directly proceeds from that first section. Knowing and having that encounter with the love of God allows us to have a revelator, a response back. And that's not a response that is a... Um, oh yeah, God's pretty cool. It's it's intended. Loving the Lord your God with your God. Your, the, yeah. Put my teeth back in. Sorry. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart has to follow having a revelation of God's love for us because it conjures up. It's designed to create in us a response to God that we have to to follow. Many years ago, I listened to a really great sermon series by David Pawson. And entitled The Normal Christian Birth. It's a really, really great sermon series. I'd highly recommend listening to it. But one of the things he does, he's quite formulaic in it. So he talks about receiving the good news, repent, be baptized. And there's different stages. And they're really, really good. But what he does is he, um, he draws on it r- realities and says, like in a real child labor, a midwife, if they miss out steps, it can have lasting effects on the child further down the line if they do not cut the umbilical cord when it should be, or if they um, try to separate the child from mother, or they don't ensure that there's enough oxygen, or any number of these medical things, there are lasting effects. And actually, the same happens with us. And what I'd like to do is just analyze a little bit of that first step. Because when we come to know Jesus, and this is really important for us, I think, as a church, when we are pastoring in new people, one of the first things that we have to do is ask God to give them a revelation of his love. Because if we don't, what it does is it misses out a vital step because the love that God has for us is the context in which our repentance and baptism is designed to be embedded. And without it, it creates a ripple effect. And that's a ripple effect that I saw in my own life. Some of the most profound encounters that I've had with Jesus have been when I've been faced with my own sin and inadequ- inadequacy. 
I was left in awe of the revelation that God could still love me because it transforms the way in which we view our sin and failure. For years, I struggled to grow as a Christian. Sanctification is the process by which where, from where we are now, there is a straight line towards us to Jesus. So we're being transformed into his likeness. That is the whole goal and the purpose of every single purpose, person, not in this room, but in the world. We are designed and created to be transformed into the image of Christ. And for years, I knew I was reading scripture. I prayed. I had a fantastic upbringing and I knew it. But I was trapped in a vicious cycle of guilt, shame, and like repentance, and I just could not break free. There were patterns of sin and guilt and shame that just surrounded so many different areas of my life. And every time I feel like I'd be moving forward in one, all it took was one setback and I would be right back at square one, feeling separated from God, feeling cut off. And the reason is, when we encounter a love like that, If we don't understand the love in our hearts and we haven't experienced it, when we do encounter that love, it just makes us feel disqualified from being a Christian. Because we think, how can I possibly stand and be loved by a God who like who is that perfect when I have done that? I've just I've just it's not possible. And so it disqualifies us from that his grace, which is why it's so important that the second step is in response to that knowledge and that recognition that God loves us. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says, through the law came death. Not because the law was in itself flawed or a a problematic thing, but by very nature, the law without God's grace and his love to give context ensnares us and traps us in cycles of guilt and shame. But for me, the breakthrough came when I was met by his love. My faults, my failures and my sin just died. At no point did it trivialize my sin or the need for repentance, but it liberated me from guilt and shame because repentance ceased to become a head knowledge thing and became a response to something, a person and his love that was greater than not only me, but also my sin. And it gives context to our baptism, most importantly, because when we encounter the love of God, when we encounter Jesus in our baptism, it makes, us a ho- it makes it a whole lot easier to know who we're being transformed into when we've met him. Jesus says, uh, you know, well, John says, God is love. If you do not know God's love, what you're doing is you're reading scripture and we're putting our understanding of God's love and our own interpretation onto it. And it makes trying to become Jesus a whole lot harder. One of the issues I've seen in, in many, and I won't lie, I think it's particularly, from at least from my experience in young men, is that when that step is missed out, we substitute it for religion. When there is no authentic encounter with the love of God, we have to fill that void with something. And even if we are reading scripture, praying, there is a void and it needs to be filled. And more often than not, we fill it with religion. We substitute it with something that is less than. That's what happened in my life. A lot of people um, who knew me from when I was younger, uh, growing up in the church as a teenager, I 
I, not to, it's not said as a brag, but I knew my stuff theologically, like knew loads of Bible teachings, was really up to, to date on that and different theologies, and I knew where I stood and I had an opinion on everything. Um, but I was cold and I was unfeeling and I did not know love. And as a result, it affected, it made, I was, it was impossible for me to be a good witness to people because I did not have the love of Christ in my life. The second part of that verse says that we are to love God with all our soul and all our mind. In Jewish culture, this is about a purity and a singleness of purpose. The use of the word soul in Hebrew is actually very different to what it would mean in the Western world. Now, this is a very this is an oversimplification, but essentially, a lot of our thinking is actually influenced by um, Greek philosophy. And the Greeks had, uh, and it was taken up in the Enlightenment period, the Greeks had this idea that the body and the soul were two totally different things. It was like the, described it as like, you know in the cartoons, Tom and Jerry, when they, like, they die, the body falls to the ground, then like a ghostly figure kind of comes up and then like wings take it off. And that's often what we, we kind of imagine as the dynamic with our Christian lives. But it's not, that's not what the Hebrews thought because the he, what the Hebrews do they go back to the start, to Adam and Eve, and they say, well, sin, the results of sin is, is death. Death is a violation of God's natural order. Therefore, what God created in Adam and Eve wasn't some like mistake or some unfulfilled portion of life. He intended us to live forever. The soul and the body for the Hebrews aren't two distinct things. It is I am the soul, my whole being, my very essence, my person, my breath, my spark of life, my mind is one thing. Death is something that violates that and rips it apart, which is something which God came to fix through Jesus. Now, so when they talk about love the Lord your God with all your soul, what he is saying is that when we pursue God, when we love God, it is something that actually involves not just a cerebral activity, not just like a, um, a profession of words. It is an action that involves our whole being. Our whole being has to be directed towards God and faced in such a way that our lives reflect and point. Like athletes training, as Paul says, to run a race, everything in us, not just our, our spare time, our whole lives should be an embodiment of a oneness and a singleness of purpose in pursuing God and his love. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the best way to reflect this is by comparing how we love God with our souls to how we nurture a healthy marriage. We have to keep work at keeping love alive. We are the bride of Christ. And when love starts to become a memory, we create a foothold for the enemy to lead us astray. An example of this is the Israelites in the desert. I wonder sometimes how... God felt, and this is a, a lesson in how we have to um, devote ourselves and create a oneness of direction with our whole body, our soul, in pursuing God. Because when we don't, we forget the thing that brought us to the, the sort of that point of revelation in the first place. The Israelites went from a place of captivity under one of the greatest superpowers of their day 
God struck down the entire Egyptian army. He literally parted a sea, allowed them to walk through, and then provided food miraculously for them for however many years. And then you get a couple of months later, and they're all like, I don't know, might worship a golden cow. Seems like a good idea. Like, you're just sort of left with this, how, how has it got from one to the other? But the importance is that you can have an initial moving revelation of God's love. But if we do not then choose to pursue it physically, it will die and it will become unhealthy. And in the same way with my marriage, I am married to Rebecca. We share the last name. We live under the same house. We submit to one another um, as the Bible tells us to. But if I do not choose to invest time in her, if I do not choose to spend time in intimacy with her, in knowing her and sharing with her, then the marriage just becomes meaningless. We're married in law, but what does it mean? And this is the same process that we have to do with God. When we talk about choosing to love God, loving God with all our heart and our soul and our mind, it means devoting ourselves with a singleness of purpose to pursue purity and holiness in God. I didn't, I didn't mention this in the first service, but in addition to this, one of the things that when we choose to love God, it allows us to make decisions that we would not ordinarily be able to make. When Ezra was in uh, intensive care, um, there's a, an opportunity that we get in trials to give glory to God and to worship him that we don't have at any other point in time. And it's a unique opportunity that when we miss out on... Um, I think it's our loss. And I remember sitting by his bedside. Um, He was still in a coma. And there was an opportunity presented to me where even the love for my child, there was a question of, I knew God's love. I had experienced it. It was powerful and it had transformed my life. But there was still a question of, is my child, my love for my child actually an idol and an obstacle to me loving God and responding? If I had not had that encounter with the Father, there is only one way that that can happen. And I've spoken to so many friends and, and colleagues when I talked about what happened. And they say, how could you love God after something like that? How could you even look at him? And I say, well, it's only possible because I know the love of the Father. When you know, it's like I, I said to Deborah earlier, we were talking about the throne room and worship, and we we're saying, yeah, it, when things go crazy, I love it. I love like throwing off shackles and worshiping in freedom. And I said, from the outside, it must look like absolute craziness, but that's only because they haven't met the person I'm worshiping, and it makes sense when they when you know him. And in that moment, I sat by the the bedside, and I I cried most of the prayer. But I told God that even if Ezra was taken, that I would still love him more. He was still a good God, and that I loved God more than I loved my son, which to to some, I know that might sound harsh, and I can't overstate. I love my son Ezra more than I, I can say, but I would rather be dead before loving him more than the one who saved me, and who saved him, and who loves him more than I could ever love him. And we only get that opportunity. We can only give those offerings to God if we, are, we place ourselves in a position where we accept that we need to know how much God loves us and we pursue that revelation. When it comes to making that oneness of decision, 
that is where this comes, this, this church family, small groups, comes into effect. Because I found that when it comes to motivating ourselves to do the things that pursue God, we're terrible at being our, like, our own motivators. We, we really are not very good because we're great on a week where we're full of energy and then when your kids wake up in the middle of the night and you're tired, you'll be like, oh, I just won't get up at half five. I'll just, we'll just leave that. And actually, that, that God, God requires more. And so small groups are a way of us surrounding ourselves with like-minded people on the same journey who can hold each other accountable, not for the things that you do wrong, but for fulfilling your destiny, for where you're going. People who say, you've got things in your life where God is going to take those, grow them. You've got destinations and destinies. And the small groups are an opportunity for people to hold each other accountable for, uh, for doing that. In the same way that if I want to grow my marriage, one of the things I have to do regularly is surround myself with other married couples who are further along that journey, who can minister to me, who can give me advice and insight and say, you know what, speaking for many more years of marriage, this is something that is really good to do. Don't neglect to do this. Don't neglect to do that. And life groups are exactly the same thing. We need to be surrounding ourselves with the encouragement to pursue a love for God. And Paul talks about this in Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, when he says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are already in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Which leads to my final point, which is loving one another. Back again to Matthew 22, 37 to 39, that last part says, And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's a reason why it has to go. God loves us. We receive a revelation and we respond in the only way that we should, which is in worship. And there's a a cycle there. But from that and a healthy relationship with God and a love for God, there is an overflow that happens that allows us to love others that is impossible without the first two revelations. And why do I say this? Because the reality is that people suck. We are terrible. We just make terrible decisions. We mess up so many things. If you've ever worked in customer service, you will know that to be true. And we, we ruin everything we touch when we're without Jesus. And the, rea- the reality is, it is impossible to love someone truly in the way that God loves them without having first experienced his love. There are charities around the world who provide food for the homeless, who give love to different people who, have, of, uh, who are in minorities or who are oppressed, and they are fantastic. But do you know what? Anyone can do that because that's just compassion and empathy. But you know what love is? Love is taking the person who, the, the person who is in squalor, who is disqualified, who rejects other forms of help and love and can encounter the love of God just through you being present. Like my friend Kim, I'm confident that I could put him in any environment and people would come away and being like, whoa, there was something different about him. And do you know what? It wasn't because he'd practiced being nice or he was the nicest person. It was because that he had encountered the love of God so deeply and profoundly that people, just by meeting him, had encountered the love of God. And that is what God is desiring for every single person here. And that comes from that choice to pursue him.
This stage has to come last because the two, without the first two, like I said about the charity, this last point just becomes fakery or lip service. We need to be so adamant in pursuing him that he is so present on us, in us, through us, around us, through the work that we do, through our words and our actions, that people encounter him just by meeting us. There's a song by Jen Johnson where she says, um, uh, I think it's just that people may feel your love just by just through a smile or something like that. And the, the lyrics, what it's saying is exactly, exactly that point, that when God is so present in us, we carry the gospel. It says, blessed are the feet of those who, who, who carry carry peace and I think that's actually referring to when people are so in love with Jesus that they can't help but just carry the gospel everywhere they don't have to make it an intentional thing I just wonder if the the worship team can can come back as I'm just wrapping up and I just want to conclude with this scripture I just want to encourage us that we need to pursue from here I don't want to give this message and then it just go into the ether. As a church, God is giving us a challenge. One, he wants to know, every one of you to know how deeply and profoundly you are loved. He wants you to love him in return and to choose to love him so that we can then love others. And we have to choose that in a a singleness of purpose. I can't emphasize that enough. There has to be a singleness of purpose. And it says this in Philippians 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love. And I said in the first service, the only way you can have the same love is if it's got the same source. You can't fake that. You've got to have that encounter. You can't be united through all having, expecting everyone to have a perfectly unified theology every hour of every day. We're going to have disagreements. But you know what? When family all have the same father and they all know the same father and they're loved by that same father, it's amazing how those differences just start to fade away. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.